Okay, well, we want to welcome you to part two of our uh, The Time Is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now More Than Ever. And we are uh, going to continue where we left off last week, but I want to begin by, by thanking you for the huge sacrifice that you are making tonight to be here, because I know you'd probably much rather be home watching the State of the Union. And, uh, but I, I just want to console you for the fact that you're missing that because uh, you can always, when you get home later tonight, you can go to YouTube and you can watch videos of a confused cat chasing a laser pointer and probably learn more than you would have learned from watching the State of the Union address. So have no fear. Uh, so we started uh, sort of the first section last week of this broad series called The Time Is Now, which is the stage being set prophetically. And I want to continue with that. I, I think, depending on kind of what happens between now and then and, and how long each evening uh, goes, uh, that we'll have one more after tonight on under this heading, possibly another one, but we shall see. Uh, but basically what we're doing in this section is looking at a few significant ways that the stage is being set for the fulfillment of specific prophecies, signaling that, therefore, that the return of the Lord is, uh, is near. So I won't mention all of them again this week, but just a kind of a sampling of some of the things that we're going to be looking at in, in later categories. We'll look at the stage being set geopolitically, technologically, uh, satanically. Uh, we'll look at the stage being set uh, philosophically, uh, academically, even things like uh, astronomically, and several others. But we started last week by looking first at the granting of statehood to Israel as a key uh, setting of the stage for many prophecies that Scripture mentions after the rapture that involve Israel being in the land. Israel has to be a nation uh, for these prophecies to be fulfilled. So when Israel became a nation again in 1948, that was pretty huge. Then last week we looked at the Battle of Gog and Magog, and how that uh, is setting the stage, uh, or the stage is being set for the fulfillment of that battle anyway, with all that's going on over there in Russia, Syria, Turkey. By the way, it's interesting that we spent a lot of time last week talking about Syria and Turkey. And then, of course, this week there's that tragic earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Uh, last I saw, over 6,000 souls uh, lost. Um, but uh, when we get to you know, setting the stage uh, geologically, which is another category, uh, we'll talk about how earthquakes are intensifying and increasing exponentially over the last two decades, uh, which I believe is just another setting of the stage because Jesus uh, talks about that in the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation talks about the proliferation of earthquakes. So the Battle of Gog and Magog, um, again, we won't go back and rehash that. Um, while each of these sessions each week is certainly standalone, and people can, can and I'm sure will join in at any time, both online and here at Plum Creek, uh, it might be helpful sometimes if you miss a session to go back and watch uh, the videos. And so all of these are posted usually by the time I get home. Uh, they're posted, uh, and you can watch the video uh, if you have to miss a particular uh, Tuesday night. And so we're going to move on now to the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet. We, we introduced that last week, but I want to spend the first part of our 
uh, session tonight on that. As a reminder, we will save questions for the end, and um, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, depending on you know what time it is and how people feel. But uh, as you think of questions throughout the sessions, make a mental note or jot them down, and we will get to as many of those as we can at the end of the session. So as we think about the stage being set prophetically, obviously a big part of end times prophecy involves uh, the, what the Bible calls the Antichrist, capital A, taking center stage and ruling the world in uh, just a reign of tyranny and evil uh, for a seven-year period. And even though the first three and a half years of that time uh, are relatively peaceful for Israel, because his, his rise to power begins with the signing of a peace treaty, a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, he will nevertheless be wreaking havoc all over the world with you know, dictates and mandates and global rules and laws. And then, of course, at the midpoint, the three-and-a-half-year point, that's when he turns on Israel and begins to persecute, persecute Israel and demand that everyone in the world worship him. He sets himself up as God. So I want to look at a few passages that I think are central to understanding the Antichrist and the false prophet, and then we'll uh, take a look, as we are doing each week, at cer certain current events that seem to be uh, conditioning and preparing the world for such a global dictator. So the key passage uh, where we get the word Antichrist, and I went over some of these last week. Remember we said the word Antichrist is the word Antichristos, and you see that here in 1 John 2.18, uh, where he says, As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, capital A, even now many Antichrists have come, by which you know that it is the last hour. And so he's talking here about really one of the, the key premises of, of the two-volume book series that I just put out, that uh, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, because remember this was written in a, the mid-90s AD, at the end of the first century, just before the book of Revelation, uh, for the last 2,000 years we've had this spirit of Antichrist that he goes on to talk about in chapter 4. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which is already now in the world. Uh, there have been many Antichrists. Um, these are Satan's candidates to be that one world leader, the one whom he will indwell. And someone asked me last week after the session, is it possible that Satan has indwelt other people? Like we know biblically he indwelt Judas and he's going to indwell the Antichrist, and I talked about that last week. But since he is not omniscient, he doesn't know exactly God's timetable, could it be that at various points in church history he has indwelt other world leaders, thinking this may be the hour and he wanted to be ready? Uh, that's certainly possible. The Bible doesn't specifically address that, but it, it's certainly possible, in which case it might be uh, conceivable that he indwelt Hitler, for example, or Stalin, or other some of those dictators that we looked at uh, through the centuries uh, last week. Uh, but certainly, uh, many antichrists, whether they are indwelt by Satan or not, are have been pervasive throughout the last 2,000 years, as Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, uh, is you know <clears throat> kind of preparing his uh, team and his battle stations for the final cosmic struggle that will happen when Christ comes back. So that's going to happen after the rapture and at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back and ushers in the long-awaited kingdom. And at that time, the, false, uh, the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. 
Satan still has a little bit of life left in him. He's got another thousand years before he meets his final demise and judgment. But he is cast into prison for a thousand years when Christ comes back, where he's held largely in check. Uh, and then there's one final battle at the end of the thousand-year millennium when he uh, is released from prison. And at that time, he meets his ultimate punishment and judgment when he too is cast into the lake of fire. So uh, this idea of the Antichrist is not something that is unique just to the end of this age, but for 2,000 years, the stage has been being set for the rise of the Antichrist. In Paul's treatment of this individual, uh, and by the way, uh, he gets a lot of uh, uh, real estate in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. He's variously referred to as the man of sin, the son of perdition, the beast, the Antichrist, um, you, you know, all of these different uh, titles for him. But uh, here's another key passage that tells us something about him when Paul says, uh, the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation period, the time of judgment, uh, cannot come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. When he's unveiled by the signing of the peace treaty, that starts the clock ticking. That's the signal that the day of the Lord has arrived at this uh, time of the great day of the Lord's wrath. But notice he's called the son of perdition. Uh, Paul tells us he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Again, that's the what the Bible calls the abomination of desolation, which occurs at the midpoint, the three-and-a-half-year point, according to Daniel and Jesus. They both use that same phraseology. Um, and then Paul goes on, Now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. That's the Holy Spirit's work in and through the church. But the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I talk about that in my books, about how the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. This is just another way of saying the same thing. The spirit of the Antichrist is the mystery of lawlessness, this you know, intensifying depravity and uh, worsening of, of uh, things on earth in terms of our moral compass. Um, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I hope you recognize that you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ and part of the church, one of our jobs is to be a restraining influence. That, uh, you know, obviously that restraining influence is becoming more and more marginalized. Uh, I actually talked about that today on a podcast that we're going to put out, I think, in a couple of days, a Christian Underground News Network interview. And uh, we talked about the end times apostasy and how uh, Christians need to be awake, not woke. And so that was kind of the whole idea behind it. Um, I don't think we're doing a very good job these days as the closer we get to the end of the age in restraining evil. But that's our job is as the Holy Spirit convicts us and leads and guides us and we stay in the word of God and grow in our faith and live out our faith and as we just sung about, follow Christ, which is part of discipleship, uh, then we ought to be making a difference and sort of keeping some reins on the evil that is uh, you know, so pervasive. Uh, and then he goes on, and then the lawless one, again, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when will he be revealed to those on earth? When he demands that everybody worship him and says, hey, I'm God. Everybody needs to worship me. That's when everyone on earth will realize or should realize uh, that this guy is, is up to no good. He will be revealed from heaven, at least revealed you know, prophetically. Anybody paying attention to prophecy will know when he signs that peace treaty at the beginning of the seven years, 
That's the guy. That's the Antichrist. But the Lord's going to consume him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Indeed, he will be cast uh, into uh, the lake of fire uh, and be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what uh, the Bible says. Uh, notice this is where we get the idea that Satan is going to be indwelling him. It says the coming of the lawless one, the coming of the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Uh, and then going back to 1 John, this is why uh, you know we, we talk about the Antichrist and false prophet together because they are kind of a dynamic duo, so to speak. Notice the similar language here. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's one false prophet coming that Revelation 13 tells us about, uh, but many have gone out into the world. Jesus said the same thing. False Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, in the context here, Jesus is talking about Israel. Uh, the, the term elect just means chosen. Context has to determine meaning. God's chosen nation, Israel, is repeatedly referred to as the chosen nation, uh, the elect nation uh, in Scripture. And Jesus is giving these words of warning to that future tribulation generation that will be alive at the time of His coming. Uh, he had already re rebuked the first century generation, and uh, He had said, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation in the future that's worthy of it, because they rejected Him. And he said to them in Matthew 23, you're not going to see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. First century Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the unbelieving Jews who were in bed with Rome at the time, they, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. But someday at Christ's second coming, the nation of Israel will have believed the gospel and they will cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the fulfillment of of Psalm 118, a very famous and frankly well-known psalm that often we sing about and quote, that, and we don't even realize the prophetic implications of it. Uh, how many of you have heard that uh, old chorus, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. Uh, we sing that all the time and we think about it in terms of, well, today is the day God made, and this is you know, the day we should rejoice in the day that God has given us. Well, that's certainly true, and the Bible talks about that elsewhere. But that's not what that verse is talking about, Psalm 118, verse 24. It's talking about the day the Lord returns. And when He returns, the nation of Israel will cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And then uh, the kingdom will finally, uh, finally come. So we, we see this tandem, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, or the beast and the false prophet, at work in passages like Revelation 13. Then I saw another beast talking about the false prophet, because Revelation's already introduced the beast, which is the book of Revelation's name for the Antichrist. But there's another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. In other words, he serves at the pleasure, if you will, of the Antichrist. And uh, he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So he's going to be in charge, not only, uh, as we're going to see, of the world e economy uh, with the mark of the beast, but he's going to be in charge of sort of being the cheerleader for the Antichrist. And he's going to set up these images 
which goes all the way back. Remember, the Bible, we talked about this last week, very important to keep this in mind. I know we're going to be, you know, four, five, six, seven months, if the Lord doesn't come back before then, dealing with Bible prophecy here. But don't forget what we laid the foundation about last week, that God's Word tells a story from beginning to end. So when you read Revelation, you need to read it with the awareness of and, and sort of a sensitivity to the book of Genesis. Well, what do we see in the book of Genesis? We see a reference early on to this image that we are image bearers. We are made, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in the image of God. And in the ancient Near East, by the time God revealed himself through Moses in the book of Genesis, you know, we had 2,000 years already of human history, including pagan religions and other pagan gods being, you know, brought up, you know, Assyrians and Egyptians and so forth. And at that time, it was very common for pagan world rulers and, and national rulers to set up literal images of themselves, statues throughout the territory to remind the citizens who's in charge. And they would, be, they would have to worship him. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, even you know, 500 years before Christ, so much more recent to modern uh, times than the ancient Near East. And he was doing the same thing, setting up images. So it's very common. Or you could think of uh, the Mount Sinai when the children of Israel set up a calf to, as an image. So very, very common. And so God created mankind, the pinnacle of creation, uh, as his crown jewel. And we, if we were you know, obeying him and following him, uh, are, are representing him. And we're reflecting his image. And prior to the fall... Uh, animals and other creation would look at mankind, Adam and Eve, and they would, they would see a reflection, as it were, of the almighty creator of the universe. Of course, when Adam and Eve sinned, it corrupted that image of God in man, and that corruption has been passed down to everyone born since then. It's in the blood. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We still have the image of God in man, what theologians call the imago Dei in Latin, image of God in man, but it's, it's corrupted. It's, it's not, uh, you know, the, the, the right kind of representation of God. It can be once we are restored and reconciled to a holy God by faith and we become a child of God once again, whenever we are walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, in that sense we are once again rightly reflecting the image of God. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? glorify God in heaven. So we're supposed to be image bearers. So it's just fascinating to me that here we are, you know, by the time you get to the tribulation, let's say the rapture happens soon in our day, any day now, uh, the Antichrist rises to power, he come, becomes center stage, and what's he going to do? He's going to likewise set up these images around the world so that people will worship him. That's what he's wanted to do all along. He wanted, Isaiah tells us, to get everyone in, heavens, in the heavenlies to worship him. He wanted to usurp God's throne. He wanted to ascend to the highest level. And, of course, God thwarted that coup, cast him out of heaven, and now this is the devil's playground. Like we, I think we said this last week, that uh, we get an insight into sort of the territorialism of the dark forces of evil, the fallen angels, the demons, Satan, the prince of demons, uh, in places like Ephesians 6, in other Old Testament passages like Daniel. Uh, we see it in places like Job when Satan approaches God to get permission to attack Job. And God says, where did you come from? And he said, oh, I came 
from roaming to and fro on the earth. See, this really is the devil's playground. 1 John 5 tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. And so we need to understand that it's fundamentally a, a spiritual battle. And when Satan uh, assumes control, again, after the rapture, uh, then he, he's going to do everything he can to get everyone to worship him, and he will do it uh, by force for those who don't do it uh, willingly. Of course, the deception is going to be so great during that day that most will naively and blindly fall in line, take the mark, and worship uh, Satan as God. Um, another thing that the false uh, prophet is going to do involved in this deception is he's going to have certain powers and signs uh, and, and he's also going to be instrumental in, or at least claim to be instrumental in the rising of the, of the Antichrist when he receives that mortal wound. Now, there's all kinds of, you know, ink been spilt over uh, this passage, whether the Antichrist literally dies and literally resurrects. Um, you know, I have my view on that, but I know good people disagree on it. That's really beside the point. Whatever actually happens, the point is the world will perceive this as a coming back to life, mimicking the resurrection of the one true Christ. That's why Satan is the Antichrist. He's the substitute. He's the imposter, right? So uh, with that biblical background, and again, we, we talk about this in much greater detail in the first chapters of uh, Volume 1 of Spirit of the Antichrist, and also in my book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. I have a pretty comprehensive treatment of the doctrine of the Antichrist and all that the Bible tells us about him. But I wanted to just sort of lay the foundation because if these things are going to happen, and of course we believe they are because we believe the Bible, then the closer we get to the rapture and the tribulation that follows, the more we ought to see the setting of the stage for this kind of powerful, globally influential type of person. So uh, in times past, when I've taught either at conferences or in, in, in academic setting uh, or even in church settings about the Antichrist, you know, it, it, it's always fun to kind of do a quick survey of the Internet and see who people are thinking the Antichrist is. There's never any shortage of candidates. Um, I didn't want to take the time to do that here, but I do want... Uh, it is kind of a fun exercise, by the way. Just go to, you know, DuckDuckGo or, you know, one of these uh, uh, search engines and just say, who is the Antichrist? You'll be amazed, right? Um, so, but I do want to highlight some interesting things that are happening in our day that are, again, conditioning us, I believe, conditioning the world, hopefully not conditioning you, because if you're a believer, you're going to be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. But... Uh, conditioning the world to sort of accept blindly a centralized form of power, a centralized power center, if you will. And so obviously the first thing that comes to mind is the World Economic Forum. It's the biggest and most powerful of many globalist organizations that influence world uh, events. Uh, I came across another one. There are many, many of these. Uh, and, and when you come across these types of uh, some of them are think tanks. Some of them are actually have power to uh, control certain industries and the, the people within the industries. When you come across these, you should, you should go to the about section of their webpage and see 
who's a part of it. And, and, and one of them that I just recently became acquainted with is called the Bilateral Chamber, which began in 1997. Uh, it was formed in Houston, Texas, and it was essentially uh, intended to kind of uh, help uh, promote trade and, and, and investment within the energy industry uh, between the United States and the MENA region. MENA is a Middle Eastern and North African region. So the Middle Eastern North African re countries are the ones that are uh, a part of this. The groups that you see on the screen there are part of the President's Circle. And so it's just so fascinating to me. And I, I talk about this in, in Volume 2 when I talk about, I have a couple chapters on the World Economic Forum, about how there's so much overlap between key globalist corporations where, you know, if you, if you look at their boards of directors, you'll see the same suspects serving on multiple boards. It really is a very small, uh, small uh, world. But if we go back to the World Economic Forum, that's what I want to focus our time on here in the first half of uh, this evening. Obviously, Klaus Schwab is the man behind the World Economic Forum. He was born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938, so he was a child of Adolf Hitler's Germany. Uh, his formative years and his boyhood were spent during the war and after the war. Uh, you know, Ravensburg, by the way, is 100 miles or so north of Davos, Switzerland, where he would later be instrumental in founding of uh, the World Economic Forum. Um, so, you know, he, he basically, and his parents, by the way, were involved also uh, and actively involved in the, uh, the Third Reich. Um, but essentially, the seeds that were planted there became kind of a lifelong uh, dream uh, for him. And he, he wanted, he's in his 80s now, but uh, since the founding of the World Economic Forum, he's been doing everything he can to kind of usher in a one-world uh, system and uh, that is set with centralized control. And we're going to look at a lot of his quotes and uh, things that he's said, particularly uh, since the pandemic. Now, this is... the pandemic is not the start of the Great Reset. I'll say more about that in a second, but really they've escalated it since, uh, since 2020. But uh, it's really a who's who of people that were involved, that are rather involved in the World Economic Forum. And uh, so, for example, he's uh, directly connected, heavily connected uh, to Jeffrey Epstein, uh, to Bill Gates, uh, to Henry Kissinger, to... Uh, uh, Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, uh, Al Gore, and uh, even, of course, John Kerry. He's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, when I did our first uh, of a two-part series with Jan Markell, we talked a lot about him, and she played some clips of him at the most recent uh, uh, gathering over there in Davos. And, of course, Yuval Noah Harari. Now, uh, with the exception of David Rockefeller there in the bottom left, what do all these people on the screen have in common? Well, they're all still living, including Epstein, but that's another story. Um, so Klaus Schwab, Klaus Schwab. So uh, he put forth the Great Reset, and they've been working on that for many, many years. It did not come about, as I said, as a result of COVID. Uh, it was already well publicized and in the works, um, and what happened is after COVID was rolled out, they, which we've proven, we show in volume one, uh, chapter nine, I think it is, 
I have 15 or 20 smoking gun evidences that the COVID uh, pandemic was pre-planned for 22 years and rolled out right on cue. It's part of their agenda. Uh, and so I encourage you to read that chapter. But what happened was once they rolled that out, then they went into the World Economic Forum website, which has massive numbers of pages and information about the Great Reset, and they started tweaking it all to kind of be, you know, connected to the pandemic. And of course, as we're going to see with some of his quotes in a moment, he really believed that this was uh, what they were going to use to get them across uh, the finish line. Um, but it's basically a massive, comprehensive global network that's putting forth a global agenda. Uh, it involves the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundations, George Soros, and many other entities to try to usher in uh, the Luciferian endgame. And so if we think for the pandemic for just a moment, we had in November of 2020, at the height of the pandemic, Time Magazine continuing to condition people that this is going to create a great reset. And the cover article there had this picture of the world with scaffolding around it being rebuilt. Because this is what the Luciferians have been planning for since Satan got kicked out of heaven. And I benchmark in the books different key moments in history. But just to quickly summarize that, and I hate to get too far off script because then we're not going to get through it all. But as these things come to my mind, I really want to set, you know, set the context a little bit. But one of the key, one of these key moments, if you go back to it, was the 17th and 18th centuries. Because at that time, in conjunction with, you know, the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason and all those kinds of things, uh, they discovered the, what they called the New World, which they called it that because they saw North America as a, a opportunity to establish a new beachhead for the New World Order, that uh, the Freemasons and, you know, the bloodlines of the Luciferians that go way back, even well before Christ, 2,000 years into the ancient times, with Moloch and Baal and Ashtoreths and all that stuff, uh, they saw this as a time to really sort of take over the, the, the land, slaughter all the Native Americans here, and create a beachhead for the, the, the New World Order. That's what it's called, the New World. And, of course, in that day, you had quite a... a uh, dichotomy between Bible-believing, born-again Christians who were men and women of faith and these, you know, average secular people who were being influenced by the powers that be that were kind of thrust like Tom's pain and some of those others trying to get people to uh, abandon their faith and trust science and reason instead. Uh, so, so if you think about that time frame, the 17th century you had some God-fearing Puritans and people of faith come over at Plymouth Rock trying to kind of seek religious freedom, uh, and they were indeed godly people, nothing to do with the broader agenda. But as they got their act together and, you know, the, the Luciferians and began to sort of plot and plan, then they sent over the next wave, which is the 18th century, and that's when we have the founding of America. So as I've documented in the books and in various DVDs that we've done, uh, the fingerprints of Satan are all over the founding of America. But as we all know very well, so are the fingerprints of God because the influence of those godly men and women and Christians in the early days of this country uh, 
were vastly underestimated by these Luciferian New World Orders, you know, New Worlders, right? And so what happened is over time, as they were, you know, working their agenda, and that's the reason, by the way, that Washington, D.C. is laid out with all sorts of satanic symbolism, just on every corner. And we've, we've been there many times, done a lot of research. There's some great videos out there that you can see if you go to prophecywatchers.org, for example. They've got some great stuff by Chris Pinto. Uh, no question that the fingerprints of Satan are all over this nation. And, um, but at the same time, the Spirit of God was moving. God, who is the ultimate arbiter of the timetable, and he's the one that's sovereign, he was using America to build up a Christian nation that could advance the gospel globally more than any other nation in history. And so that's what we saw happen. Now fast forward to the early 20th century, the turn of the 20th century. That's when these one-worlders and the Luciferians finally realized, you know, this has gotten away from us. You know, America is a Christian nation, uh, and it was back then. But they said, uh, you know, we've got, to, we've got to regain control of it. And so they knew that in order to usher in the one-world system at Satan's behest, the one they work for, uh, they've got to do away with America. And so they set in motion very systematically, and this is so easy to see when you, when you really begin to research it. There's some great uh, documentaries out there that, that blow by blow uh, uh, illustrate this. Um, what's the uh, one that we wa we've watched? It's uh, by, uh, oh, it'll come back to me, but his, his name is, uh, he's over in Japan, Corbett, uh, yeah. Uh, James Corbett, the Corbett Report. He's got two excellent full-length two-hour documentaries that really show how all of this comes together starting in the 1800s and then early 1900s. Um, but it's enough to just know that the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, uh, several other Luciferian-controlled groups came in. They took over medicine. This is early 1900s. They took over education. They took over economics with the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And they basically set in place a plan that within a hundred years, they hoped, would bring down this country. And indeed, they've done a pretty good job. Uh, I mean, we don't even have to know that backstory to simply look at the moral trends of this country and recognize that, you know, whereas a hundred years ago, teachers were worried about students chewing gum in class, today they're worrying about rapes in bathrooms and mass shootings and, you know, uh, all kinds of abominations, right? So it's, it's just obvious that this is where that this is where we're heading. Depravity is a degenerative disease. It does not get better with time. It gets worse. And so uh, as they progressed in their plan, and there were some key benchmarks uh, in there, 1963 Supreme Court ruling, 1973 Supreme Court ruling, uh, obviously the establishment of the Federal Reserve in secret in 1913 on an island off the coast of Georgia on the East Coast, um, other key moments. Uh, they made great strides in trying to take control of this country. But by now, here we are, 2023, it's been in their hands for decades. It's been in their hands for literally decades. And so, uh, so you know, they've got to bring down America so that they can, you know, usher in a one-world system that includes everybody. Right now... America is still, you know, pretty much the world's only superpower. And, you know, we're still standing in the way. But they are getting closer by the day to really destroying this, this great country. 
Uh, and so what, what they call the Great Reset, I call the Great Satanic Reset. And again, we, we, uh, we get into this in much greater detail than other places like the, the book series. But I want to just sort of give you a few highlights to let you know that this isn't just the stuff, you know, of a raving lunatic here. This is, you know, well-documented, well-studied, uh, well-researched information. But they dedicate their lives to Satan. They, they worship him. They, uh, we, we see, for example, in Saul Alinsky's book that they dedicate their books to him. Remember him? He was uh, the, uh, uh, Obama's, uh, one of his key uh, influencers. He, he, in fact, he announced his uh, uh, presidential campaign on the steps of Alinsky's, uh, 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 you know, house. And, um, but Alinsky wrote the famous book, Rules for Radicals, which at the beginning he dedicates to Lucifer. He says, this is in the dedication page, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history. And he, and he adds, and who's to say where mythology leaves off and history begins, or really which is which, because there is no truth, really, in a Luciferian mindset. There's no absolute. So truth is fiction, fiction is truth, myth is reality, reality is myth. But he says, we're dedicating this to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he won his own kingdom, Lucifer. See, remember, they see Lucifer as the hero. Lucifer broke the bonds of control that God had, and, uh, and they applaud him for it. This is the same Saul Alinsky who told Playboy magazine in an interview in 1972 that he couldn't wait to get to heaven. I mean, couldn't wait to get to hell because, quote, they're my kind of people. That's a paraphrase. I have the exact quote in the book, but basically, that that's they they're not a, not denying it at all, right? Um, and so we see you know evidence of this all around us. In fact, I meant to throw a slide in here, which I just came across yesterday. And I didn't get to it, but it's an interesting sort of overlay of five or six different uh, pictures from events and other things that all have the same running theme of people wearing red. And, and, you know, the implication is they're part of a group. And, and w w what is that group? We saw this Sunday night on the Grammys. I didn't see it. I could care less about the Grammys, but I saw the coverage of it. Uh, but there was a satanic performance uh, at the 65th Annual Award Show on Sunday night uh, when a, a song by Sam Smith and Kim Petras called Unholy, that's the name of the song, won a Grammy, and they performed it live uh, on stage. Uh, even secularists were out there, you know, complaining that this was a bit too far. I actually clipped from one of the news feeds a clip of the video intending to show it. But when I watched it, it was so revolting and so, you know, profane that obviously I'm not going to show that in a church setting. Uh, so this is just a still photo after they received uh, uh, the reward. Uh, but it's uh, interesting that right after that song, there was one of those stinger promos. A stinger promo in, in media is just a quick sort of anywhere from five second to 15 second ad that pops on. You see them a lot in football games these days. Used to they would break for commercial. Now they split the screen and they're showing kind of what's going on in the field while they have some ad, you know, on the right. That's called a stinger promo. And uh, right after they accepted the award, the per performance, or right after the performance, I should say, one of those promos came on, and 
said it was sponsored by guess who? Pfizer. <laughs> and if you don't think Pfizer is a satanically influenced and inspired organization, you don't know much about a big pharma. See my previous comments about the turn of the 20th century and the, the influence on medicine. Uh, but anyway, uh, in case you were wondering, and apparently many people out there on the internet were, uh, uh, Madonna had a thing or two to say about it, and she actually was one of the presenters. Yes, that's Madonna. I know it's hard to, to, to believe. She was, what is she, like 70 now or something? I don't know. But um, anyway, uh, she's uh, um, one of the most unholy performers uh, of our day, but she uh, did a presentation just ahead of this performance to somebody else, but she sort of referenced the coming uh, performance, and she said, I'm here to give thanks to all the rebels out there. You know, what did we see back over here? Uh, the first radical who rebelled against the establishment, right? She says, I'm here to, to, to give uh, uh, to, to give thanks to all the rebels out there, forging a new path and taking the heat for it. Uh, you guys need to know, all you troublemakers out there, you need to know that your fearlessness does not go unnoticed. You are seen, you are heard, and most of all, you are appreciated. To which I would say, no, they're seen, they're heard, and most of all, they're satanic. That, that's what they are. They're an instrument and a tool uh, of uh, the devil. So here's this next guy. This guy I found kind of interesting. Uh, what does he have? He's 21 years old, and he has 72,000 followers on Twitter. Um, I'm not, we, we have a ministry presence on Twitter, but I'm not connect. I don't know much about Twitter, uh, but I thought this guy's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, and he's not a believer, but he's, he's a conservative. And he, he, as he says in his little description here, I don't know if you can see that, it's pretty small, but he says, many of us who can see what's going on uh, are ready to fight the new world order. So, you know, that kind of gets my attention. This guy seems to be awake to reality, even if he may not know the Lord. But here's the part that was interesting. He sent out this tweet in the context uh, over the uh, weekend. He said, I'm not even religious. And yet with every passing day, I am more and more convinced that we are living in satanic times. This level of evil goes beyond what humans are capable of. It's demonic. Now, when secular unbelieving millennials start crying foul over the level of Satanism that we see, that to me is prophetically significant. That is a setting of the stage prophetically for the coming of the Antichrist. Then I threw this one in uh, just for kicks, uh, just kind of goad some people who are still kind of trapped in that right-left uh, paradigm. But this is what people think witchcraft looks like. This is actually what it looks like, just, uh, just letting you know. Um, but back to the World Economic Forum, uh, he's written several books, Klaus Schwab has, uh, including the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And this is what he says, the Fourth Industrial Revolution will affect the very essence of our human existence. See, this is what Satan has been waiting for for 6,000 years since he got kicked out of heaven. This is what he's been licking his chops at. He's been doing everything he can uh, to try to take over the world. And he's come close many times, you know. We can think back in ancient times to the world empires. Of course, God's Word reveals to us that all of those things were going to happen. Uh, you know, it's not like 
God is reacting to Satan's plan. God is allowing things to, to go on as they are now, but it's all prophesied in Scripture. You know, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, the revived Roman Empire. I mean, to me, it's so utterly astounding to me that some uh, believers today have no interest in Bible prophecy, given that if you look at the, the prophecies in Daniel that so clearly outline world history as if they were written in retrospect, but they weren't. They were written, you know, hundreds of years before. Uh, you know, why would, we, why would we doubt the reality of the revived Roman Empire when Daniel makes that quite clear in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7? Um, so again, sometimes you'll see this referred to as the fourth IR, and sometimes abbreviated just four IR. It's referred to as the fourth industrial revolution. It's basically techno-tyranny a means of controlling uh, the world. So his latest book, which just came out last year, is called The Great Narrative. And um, I touched on this within a week of it coming out at a conference I did uh, last year. Uh, but a lot of people still are not aware uh, of the kinds of things that he said in this book. We, we see a lot of prophecy experts and you know conservative pundits out there still quoting you know, you know, The Great Reset, his book called The Great Reset, which is bad enough, but he's even more blatant in The Great Narrative, which again, the whole point of this is that the stage is being set prophetically for unabashed and blatant power-hungry leaders to just demand that you follow them and do what they say. Um, you know, one of the last times that something anywhere near this level happened would be with Hitler. And at least then the world eventually, it took him a while, but eventually recognized the evil that it was and, you know, put him in his place. You know, they ran him out of town over to South America where he lived out his days and died, you know. Um, but uh, let's look at some of these quotes from, uh, from Klaus Schwab. This again, last year, he just wrote this. The pandemic has occurred at a, at a very particular juncture when our economies and societies seem ill-suited to many of the challenges that lie ahead, when the geopolitical and technological landscapes are being reshaped in a way that will make them unrecognizable. He doesn't say someday. He says in just a few years. So he really believes that in his lifetime, and he's going to do everything he can to make it happen, we will see the New World Order inaugurated. Uh, solutions to the major challenges we face do exist and are within grasp, but they will require a great deal of innovation. So again, the whole premise here is we've got this horrible boogeyman, this terrible thing that's changed life, but don't worry, we're here to rescue us. We're, I mean, we're here to rescue you. And it is the classic case of Hegelian dialectic, where they create a problem so that people will cry out, save us from this boogeyman, and then they swoop in with a preconceived plan all along of what they wanted you to do. But instead of forcing it on you, they get people to line up and beg you to take it. It's classic Hegelian dialectic. I have a whole chapter on that in, I uh, can't remember if it's volume one or volume two. But uh, he goes on, dramatic changes in our economies and societies, as well as in the institutions, laws, and rules that govern them. Our life habits and modes of consumption will also need to change drastically. They're telegraphing what they're going to do. Then he talks about the demise of the U.S. 
Could cryptocurrencies be used to accelerate the demise of the U.S. dollar? Well, that, that's what they want to do. They want to de destroy America. Uh, the fundamental issue of our newfound ability to manipulate life will impact our humanness. The, the, the fundamental issue of how our newfound ability to manipulate life will impact our humanness, challenges our beliefs, morals, and religions, and politics at their very core. And we are ill-prepared for that. Now, I just talked about this yesterday on a very powerful podcast. I made the comment, I think it's the most powerful podcast I can remember doing. And it was with a guest named Shane, who's an IT expert, and we talked all about, about chat GPT and AI and how that's being used to advance the Luciferian agenda. And uh, if you have not listened to that yet, it's less than 24 hours old, listen to it. Or it's just, just over, just right about 24 hours old. I, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. And in fact, it's the first time ever that I've actually gone back and listened to an entire podcast I did because the information Shane was relaying was so powerful and insightful and interesting to me that I really couldn't even process it all while I was doing the podcast. I wanted to go back and listen to it again. And uh, I, I really encourage you to listen to that because this is what they're talking about doing is challenging what it means uh, to be human. Arthur C. Clarke was one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time and his most famous novel was 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, but uh, he's one of the big three science fiction authors along with uh, Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. And anyway, in Childhood's End, one of his most famous books, he said, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And we need to understand there is a, a almost an inseparable combining now of technology with demonic activity, magic, right? So that it's hard to know where one begins and the other ends. It's kind of like with pharmakeia, which we is the Greek word from which we get our English word pharmacy, and you see that word come up a lot in Revelation uh, as part of the agenda uh, that the Antichrist and the false prophet will use. Well, what is it? In, in Greek, in the first century, it meant using chemical potions to control people. Uh, today, pharmacy, you know, has been kind of desanitized or sanitized, I should say, and made into this, you know, you know, helpful world word ever since the turn of the 20th century. But, uh, you know, in the 1800s, people wouldn't think about injecting poisons inside their body to try to cure something. There was, that wasn't medicine, right? But anyway, in the same way, I think a lot of this technology, it's hard to blur, it's hard to distinguish the line between technology and magic. And I think Arthur C. Clarke was ahead of his time on that. Uh, this is one of my favorite quotes from The Great Narrative, just because it, it really says it all. But here he's quoting Edward Osborne Wilson, who died in 2021, by the way. He was an American biologist. And strangely enough, he was an, uh, an expert in uh, ants, the study of ants. In fact, he was colloquially called the Ant-Man. This is uh, Edward Osborne Wilson. But here's, what, here's how uh, Klaus Schwab quotes Wilson. He says, we have, this is Wilson, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technologies. And then Schwab comments, indeed. Well, what's he saying there? 
He's saying that we have achieved godlike abilities, but our struggle is the emotions of the populace and the outdated institutions like marriage, church, national sovereignty, freedom. Those are, are all so outdated that we've got work to do to bring them along and catch up to where we enlightened adepts are. In other words, you know, and these are my words, not his, but I would paraphrase what he's trying to convey here in the context as saying that we're like a 13-year-old getting behind the controls of a jumbo jet. And he said, we need the Luc he's implying we need the Luciferian elite, the initiated, to show us how to fly it. So stick with us on our godlike technologies, and we will create God in the image of man. And that's exactly what transhumanism is. It is the attempt to obliterate the image of God in man. The Bible says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's why this whole issue of transgenderism is not just the next social battle. and all. It is fundamentally demonic to its very core because it strikes right to the very nature of the image of God in man. And so they're pushing transgenderism, as I talk about in chapter 13 of volume 2, the gender surrender movement. But eliminating gender paves the way for what they call uh, the singularity, the, the final merging of man or machine, or like we talk about in the book, what they call the bio-digital convergence. And now in our podcast yesterday, Shane, who's much more of an expert on all this than I am, talks about how there is still a distinction between sort of genetic AI and technological AI, or biological AI and technological AI but they're becoming closer and closer and closer. And that's what they call the bio, biological, digital, technological, convergence, where they are trying to create not just man, uh, but create God. And I'll, I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. Um, so AI is crucial to this because AI has no gender. And so for them to get AI to become the accepted norm, which, by the way, it just about already is. We just don't know it yet. We are victims of AI at every level. And that was one of the real takeaways that I got from the podcast yesterday. Uh, but uh, it, for it to really become mainstream and, and talked about openly as if it's no big deal, they've got to eliminate gender because AI doesn't have gender, right? And Klaus Schwab is an out-and-out -out transhumanist who dreams of an end to natural, healthy human life and community. Listen to what he says, quote, the mind-boggling innovations triggered by the fourth industrial revolution from biotechnology to AI are redefining what it means to be human, end quote. He says, quote, the future will challenge our understanding of what it means to be human from both a biological and a social standpoint, end quote. Elsewhere, he explains, quote, already advances in neurotechnologies and biotechnologies are forcing us to question what it means to be human. I have many, many more quotes from other Luciferians in the book that just show you this is a frequent refrain right now where they're conditioning us that humanity is a lower life form, that we need to evolve beyond it, and that if you'll just come with us, we can actually create gods if you'll just come with us. So again, this goes back to Satan and, and what we read about in Isaiah, the name Lucifer means day star. 
It originally referred to the planet Venus, but like Venus, when the sun arose, he, Satan was no longer visible when God arose in his sovereignty, and God, he, he, couldn't, tra he couldn't eclipse God's, uh, God's sovereignty and God's glory, uh, though he tried. And so he got kicked out of heaven when the coup fail, failed. And uh, we read, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? You who are, how are you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. And here's the key one. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. Well, I hate to tell him, but there's only one seat available. And it's already taken, Right? Um, so, uh, Jesus, we saw in him interacting in the wilderness right after his baptism, before he started his Galilean ministry. And what did we find? Satan took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Remember in that Saul Alinsky quote, uh, he referenced the kingdom, that Satan has a kingdom. Well, he absolutely has a kingdom. It's a false kingdom. It's a satanic kingdom. It's run by demons and human counterparts, the accomplices, the, the human co-conspirators in the Luciferian conspiracy. And so Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan is obsessed with being number one. He wants control of this world and he wants God to bow down and worship him, which, of course, will never happen. So I mentioned this fellow earlier, and um, he is an uh, Israeli public intellectual historian and professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's a historian. He's written several books, uh, but he really has become the, the right-hand man to Klaus Schwab. And Klaus Schwab, who says plenty of horrific things, uh, really pales in comparison to the things that we've heard coming from Harari's mouth recently. Let me just give you a few examples. Of course, he's famous for giving TED Talks and other seminars at the World Economic Forum and other places about how humans are now hackable animals. Uh, he said, God is dead. It's just taking a while to bury the body. Um, what he means by that is we intellectually elite understand that there is no God and there hasn't ever been and he's dead in the, in the human mindset. But unfortunately, there's still some of these naive, useless breeders like you and me who are hanging on to their belief in God. So that's what he means when he says it's just taking a while to bury the body. Harari wants to upgrade humans into gods, quote unquote. He states that he and his colleagues at the World Economic Forum have the power to re-engineer life. Uh, humans, again, are now hackable animals. The whole idea that humans have a soul and free will is over. It was a false idea. It was fake news. Uh, in an August 16th, 2022 TED Talk, actually he was interviewed by Chris Anderson, the founder and head of, of TED Talks. Uh, he said, quote, we just don't need the vast majority of the population in the 21st century, given modern technologies. He showed no sympathy for common people, as he called them, who fear being left behind in a technocratic future run by smart people. These are his words. He asserted, quote, the future is about developing more and more sophisticated technology, 
like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. Most people, he said, don't contribute anything to that, except perhaps for their data. In other words, we're lab rats. We can be really helpful lab rats, but beyond that, we're no value to the Luciferians. Uh, you know, perhaps, except perhaps for their data and whatever people are still doing, which is useful, these technologies increasingly will, will make redundant and make it possible to replace people. Now, we're about to wrap up tonight because I want to leave some time for questions, but this is, is leading us into the next section of how the stage is being set prophetically, and that is through the depopulation movement, which uh, is nothing new, but it is gaining new uh, heights. Um, so in a, in a February 24th, 2017 article, Yuval Noah Harari wrote, it was titled, The Rise of the Useless Class. This was back in 2017. He said 99% of human qualities and abilities are simply redundant for the performance of most modern jobs. Just, quote, just as mass industrialization created the working class, Artificial intelligence, the AI revolution, will create a new unworking class. And what do you do with unworkers, with non-workers, with people who you don't need? You kill them, right? That, that's my words, but I mean, he says that in so many words in other places. This is the same man who scorns Christ and once referred to proclamations about Jesus being the Son of God and rising from the dead as fake news. So a couple more uh, before we uh, take questions. Ray Kurzweil is a key transhumanist um, whose desire, of course, is to create a post-human uh, species where people are no longer human. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Ray Kurzweil, who works with Google, one of their top engineers now. Many politicians are all jumping on this uh, transhumanist uh, bandwagon. And, uh, you know, on the possibility of divine intelligence, uh, Kurzweil was asked, does God exist? And he repeats the question and he says, does God exist? Well, I would say not yet, but we're working on it. We're getting there. We'll let you know when we, when he does, you know, Elon Musk, uh, another out and out transhumanist has uh, admitted on tape that transhumanism is not just about reversing aging or the pursuit of immortality. He says, quote, soon we will be able to turn you into a expletive butterfly if we want to. See, this is, they're playing God. They're playing with the DNA and the genome and they're just having the time of their life. And they treat us and they say this in their own words. I mean, this is, you've all know Harari, you know, says it repeatedly every time he opens his mouth that we're just a bunch of lab rats. And so I encourage you to, to, to read the section in, the, in my book where I talk about depopulation and how uh, the government you know, has done unwitting experiments on our citizens for 200 years. It's, this is nothing new. Um, there is good news, though, and we'll end with this. And the time is coming when the Antichrist and the false prophet will get their due. The beast was captured. This is at the second coming of Christ. And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So, uh, you know, clearly we, we, we see the rise, uh, we see, you know, the 
uh, cultural, geopolitical world stage being set for the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet. So next time we will get into the depopulation movement and then after that, possibly next week, depending on how long it takes, increasing deception and ultimately one world government. All of this under the category, again, of uh, the stage being set prophetically for uh, the return of the Lord. So with that, I will open it up to questions. And I don't think we have a microphone uh, handy. So let's just, uh, I'll try to repeat the question. But if you would do me a favor and try to keep the questions fairly short. I know that's hard because you have a lot of ideas kind of formulating in your mind and you're, you, you want to kind of lay the foundation for the question. Um, but the reason I, I do that, number one, it kind of helps us get more questions in. But also, for those that are watching the video or even right now live streaming, it's to them it sounds like extended silence. And that's why you'll hear me when you're asking a question, I'll say yes or uh-huh, or I'll just speak so that people know that we're still here. Uh, we haven't been raptured, you know. Uh, of course, it's video too, so they would see me disappear if the rapture happened. Uh, hopefully, they would disappear with us. But anyway, um, any comments, questions about anything we talked about tonight or anything else that you'd like to ask? Yeah. Uh, rebuilding the temple. Can you talk about that? Yeah, rebuilding the temple. Uh, so uh, clearly, one of the uh, things that happens, this goes back to the what we talked about with the uh, granting of statehood to Israel. Israel takes center stage again during the tribulation, no question, and of course during the millennium. So remember, we have uh, the tribulation temple coming, the third temple, and then after it's destroyed at the second coming, Ezekiel the prophet talks about the, the millennial temple that's going to be the biggest and most magnificent of them all. Um, so clearly there has to be a temple for all this to happen. But it doesn't mean there has to be a temple before the rapture, because the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time, and, uh, and, and conceivably, after the rapture, they could start construction on the temple. But I will say, from people that I've talked to and people that study this for a living, I mean, I, I have friends, one of, one of whom, whom is in charge of the Qumran archaeological dig, and he knows very well about uh, the, the temple being, you know, building project. Uh, definitely, there's a lot of talk and chatter about about doing that, and um, it would not surprise me if the Lord tarries is coming, if we see construction already well on its way before the rapture. But I just want to clarify, it doesn't have to be. Where temple could be built after the rapture. Yeah. Anybody else or somebody else? Yes? If the Luciferians got everything they wanted, what would the world look like? Wow, what a great question. If the Luciferians got everything they wanted, what would it look like? Well, I think it would look like the seven years described in Revelation, uh, chapters 6 to 18. It would look like a complete one-world system, no mercy, full-spectrum planetary control digitally where everybody, every move you make is tracked, every word you say is tracked, everything you buy is have to, you have to get government permission for. Um, it would look like in, in, in their minds, this uh, satanic utopia where, you know, the, uh, maybe a hundred thousand, if that many, of the top tier of the Luciferians are sitting back in their mansions, living off the fat of the land, while 400,000 of us, because remember, their stated goal is to get the world's population, I mean million, is down to 500 million. 
So it maybe looked like maybe 100,000 of them or how many ever at the top tier. And the rest of us millions are useless breathers. We're there to sweep the floors, take out the trash, cook their meals, and climb atop the satanic altars and serve as sacrifices. That's what it would look like. Somebody else. Yeah. Um, do you think uh, Klaus Schwab and the likes of him, uh, all, the, all of his followers, um, do you think that they've been given over to a reprobate mind as mentioned in Roman eight, eight, Romans 8, Romans 1, 1. 18 yeah. to 32? And if they are, I don't know if we know for sure, do they have any chance of being saved? Redemption? So, so the question is, uh, are Klaus Schwab and all of his minions and the people that have kind of been swept up in his uh, agenda, have they uh, been given over to a reprobate mind as described in Romans 1, 18 to 25? And if so, is there any hope for them uh, in terms of salvation? So I think it depends on what level you're talking about. And in the book, I actually outline in volume one a, you know, a diagram, a, a, a pyramid of the Luciferians and the different levels. And I believe that World Economic Forum is so uh, influential right now that there are a lot of people uh, that have jumped on board because it's strategic and advantageous business-wise that they don't have a clue about the satanic backing behind it and, and what the ultimate plan is. They don't have a clue that there are actually a small group of people at the tip of the spear that are taking their marching orders directly from Satan. So... I think in that sense, there's always hope for the Spirit of God to break through, for them to hear the gospel. Remember, it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. Uh, and even the most hardened heart uh, can, can hear and believe the gospel at some point if, if they want. Uh, God doesn't force anyone to be saved. You know, we have a choice just like we had a choice to sin in the garden. We have a choice to receive the free gift of eternal life. But if the Apostle Paul, who in his day was one of the most hardened enemies of the cross and murdering Christians. If the Spirit of God can break through in his life, I think he can break through in anybody's life. But I do think at the top level, there are, you know, people that have literally sold their soul to Satan and are, you know, sacrificing children, drinking blood and worshiping him. And I I think at, you know, at some point, it, it you know, it seems unlikely that, that they would ever uh, change their mind, you know. But anybody else? Yes. So these Luciferians and the uh, AI uh, promoters and so forth, what's their um, take on their own mortality yeah. and eternity? So the question is, what is the, what, you know, how do the Luciferians and transhumanists with, with AI and all that, how do they view their own e eternality and, and so forth? So... That's their big quest, is to defeat death. And that's why the Bible says that death is the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, right? And that's why the Bible says that death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Because death is the consequence of sin. Remember, God said in Genesis 1, In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Die. And until they ate of the apple, there was no death, no physical death. Nothing, none of the animals died, right? But they, you know, they brought death into the world through their sin. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, because all have sinned. And so 
that's Satan's big lie, is that you can skirt death. If you'll follow me, you don't have to die. There are no consequences for sins, for sin. And that's what, why, what did the serpent say to Eve? The devil say to Eve? He said, you shall not surely die, right? So there, Satan's plan and the plan of his human uh, co-conspirators is to skirt death somehow, to overcome death. So they've been working on this forever. You know, they, they talk about cryogenics and they talk about creating life. The, the whole idea behind artificial intelligence is to somehow, and, and Neuralink with Elon Musk and, and other similar brain-computer interfaces, BCIs, uh, is to somehow create an immort immortality so that death has, has been defeated. Uh, but the only one that can defeat death is the one who gives life, and that's Christ. And so um, Jesus said, uh, if you believe in me, uh, you have passed from death to life, and you'll never come into judgment in John. And he said um, that in order to be see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again. So you've got you to be reborn because you're dead. You're dead spiritually and you'll die physically. And so, yeah, their goal is to, to completely eliminate the whole idea of death because that was God's judgment. That was God's punishment. And as long as that still exists, Satan's minions are going to have a shadow of doubt about following their leader. Well, you haven't overcome that one thing. You know, we don't like to mention it around you, Satan, but you know that, that D word, you know, he hadn't overcome that yet. Uh, and, that, and that again leads up to in the climactic final seven-year period at the end of the age after the rapture, Satan through the Antichrist rising from the dead as a way to deceive the world into saying, I've conquered death. You know, somebody else. Any more questions or comments? Yes. Okay. We have no limit tonight. Tonight only. No limit. The statue in Daniel, when he talks about the feet being clay and iron, I've heard different ideas of what people say that is. So talking about the statue in Daniel 2, where the feet are representing the revived Roman Empire. Remember, there's only four empires there. It's not a fifth one. It's the revival of the fourth one. Um, and the reference there is to mixture of iron and clay. So I get into this in our, we have a two-volume DVD set, or it's now, I don't think we have DVDs anymore. It's a streaming set that you could purchase, but it's the two most important prophecies in Daniel. And you're right, there's a lot of speculation about what the iron and clay, you know, I, you know corresponds to. But my hermeneutic basically leads me to not speculate as much as we can. And since the Bible doesn't specifically identify the iron and clay, I think the bigger point there is just that it's an unstable, you know, uh, empire that rises up quickly and just as quickly crumbles when the rock not built with hands comes and shatters it. You know, that's Christ comes back. So I think it's more a indication of the weakness of that final empire when compared to God's kingdom than it is specifically what the iron clay, but it could be, you know, it could be a combination of, you know, different geographic people. It could be, who knows, but, all right. Yes. Can I piggyback off that question? Sure. So in 243, it talks about the iron and the clay not mixing with the seed of men. Yeah. So could that be transhumanism? 
Well, let's look at the question is, could there be a veiled reference to transhumanism in Daniel 2? And it's around 40 to 44. Ezekiel, that's in the Old Testament, right? Uh, Daniel 2. Yeah, here we go. Uh, verse 41, this is him explaining the image. Uh, we'll start, start out in verse 40 to get the context. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes that kingdom, and like that, and like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. That's the fourth uh, empire. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. So we didn't talk about that, but that's just as the first Roman Empire had a western and eastern part, so too will the revived Roman Empire. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And that's kind of what I was saying. And so, uh, let's see, verse 43. Uh uh, verse 44, and in the days of these kings, no, where did we leave off? Uh, 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So, I mean, it's possible that that's talking about some type of, uh, you know, a hybrid thing like we saw in Genesis 6. You know, that's been something Satan's been trying to do since the early days after you know, uh, creation. Um, so, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clays. Uh, you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay. They will mingle with the seed of men. Yeah, it's a little bit obtuse there. I, I wouldn't hang my hat on the transhumanism thing, but um, we'd have to go back and look at it a, a little more closely in, in Hebrew and see if that's some type of a, metaphor or or something i think the big takeaway though is whatever it is it's not going to last it's not going to be something that is going to be able to overtake you know god's kingdom because he goes on and let's, let's finish with the good news in the days of these kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break in places and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So I think the seed there is what catches our attention when we think about the Genesis 6 account and all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and this that's where we kind of start thinking about the transhumanist concept. But seed could just be a colloquial way of talking about human beings, the seed of men, that in the same way that we talk about daughters of men and sons of men and that kind of thing. So I'm not really sure. That's a... a Long way to say, I don't really know, but it's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, so on that same topic, if the last days are going to be like the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, you had the Nephilim. Yeah. So you had the angels that were uh, mingling with the uh, daughters of men. You know, if that verse, and it, it, it will, it, it's going to hold true, um, wouldn't there be some type of, uh, I guess, transhumanism? From that viewpoint, yeah, so that's a great uh, comment that I want to clarify a few things because I take a little bit different approach to this the Olivet Discourse and the Days of Noah analogy. And those of you that have followed my teaching for a while, you probably have heard me talk about this. 
But and we have a whole eight part set on the Olive explicitly on the Olivet Discourse. If anyone's interested, you could check that out. But um, when Jesus makes the analogy that at the time of his coming, the tribulation period, things will be like they were in the days of Noah. He's not making a carte blanche statement saying that everything is going to be the same as it was then. The context there is making a specific analogy about being caught off guard even though you were warned. So in the days of Noah, Noah spent day after day warning people of the coming judgment, and yet they ignored it and they were swept away in judgment. Jesus says, in the same way, even though you've been warned, Many people will be deceived, and they, the flood will come and sweep them away in judgment. In fact, Luke actually says in his account of this same analogy, which is, by the way, a pretty important analogy because Jesus said it on two different occasions at least that we know of in Scripture. Because in Luke 17, which is not Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus makes the same analogy, and he says the flood came and destroyed them all, which is important because the people mistakenly apply that Noah analogy to the rapture, but it's not about the rapture. The rapture had not been revealed yet. It's about the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom. Because in the very few verses just before that, Jesus has just said, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and sits on his throne, it's the second coming. He's talking about the tribulation period. So, I mean, you know, if you just take it as a blanket, everything's going to be like it was in Noah, well, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, obviously that was thousands of years earlier. There are a lot of things that are going to be different. So I don't think, I do believe, let me hasten to add here, I absolutely believe we're seeing the rise of the Nephilim. I just don't base it on that passage. I think the Bible teaches that elsewhere. Um, so uh, it's, it is true that there are a lot of things happening in the days of Noah that, you know, might be similar to what's happening during the tribulation. Some of them won't. His only point there is, you know, just as it was in the days of Noah, people were caught off guard when the flood came. That's what he goes on to say. That parenthetical part there is just sort of a, is, is beyond the, the point. He wouldn't even have to have that in there. He's just saying, in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying. They were just doing normal stuff for their day. And guess what? The flood came and swept them away. In the same way, at the, during the tribulation, People are going to be going through the motions. It doesn't mean everything's going to be normal. It, it's, every generation is a new normal. We have all kinds of things today. Uh, and, and certainly in the tribulation period, when it's a one-world government run by the Antichrist, it's going to be a pretty different world. But the point is, people are going to be going through their day-to-day -day routine, whatever that is, and not be aware that judgment is coming. And I, in my... Uh, Actually, in the chart book, if you don't want to go find that Olivet Discourse video series, I have a chart that compares the days of the, the time of Noah with the time of the tribulation and the corresponding verses that show Jesus is talking here about being watchful, being ready. Don't ignore the warning. Be ready. And then he goes on to say, because uh, two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left. That's not the rapture, folks. That's the second coming, because in the days of Noah, the ones taken away were taken away in judgment. And Luke makes that clear when he has Jesus saying not just that they took them away, that he destroyed them. So the ones left behind in Noah's day were the righteous to inhabit the earth. The ones taken away were the ones taken away in judgment. 
right? And that's exactly what it's going to be like in the tribulation period. The analogy makes no sense. It actually turns it on its head if you think that's talking about the rapture because then you've got the people being taken away, being destroyed, right. which makes no sense. Um, so, I mean, it, I'm not going to die on that hill as far as the Nephilim. It certainly could be in the veiled, a veiled reference to other types of things happening at that time. But you don't need the Olivet Discourse to prove that the Nephilim have been with us post-flood all these years and they're rising up again. Yeah, yeah. one of the reasons why I thought that kind of fit is because you have Enoch that was raptured. Mm -hmm. And then you have Noah and his family being saved through that time period. Right, yeah. And then after that, you have them going into, you know, kind of a new world. Right, no doubt. Yeah, the Table of Nations and all right. that. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, I think there's definitely some parallels, but I think between the days of Noah and tribulation, Jesus certainly uses it as an analogy, but we don't want to be guilty of stretching the analogy beyond the specific words on the page. And all he specifically says is that in Noah's day, they were caught off guard when the flood came, even though they'd been warned. And in the time of my coming, people are going to be caught off guard even though they've been warned. We can at least say that much. Could there more be going on there? Very possible. Um, but yeah, the parallels as the Bible comes full circle, remember what we talked about last week, are fascinating because the same types of things Satan has tried and tried early on to corrupt the gene pool and all that, we're seeing that happen uh, today with through all kinds of means. So, Good points. Great questions. Anybody else? Don't want to end too quickly. If you got questions, that's what we're here for. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, want to just close with a couple of announcements. I always like to save this uh, toward the end and just let you know about a few things that uh, you might want to uh, listen to. You can tell by how many slides I'm fast-forwarding through how much I didn't get to that I thought we might tonight. But here's that... Uh, chat GPT thing again that I mentioned. I highly recommend you listen uh, to that. Also, our video with Jan Markell and podcast as well uh, that dropped last weekend uh, is uh, available. And we've got another one, a separate one, part two, coming this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I encourage you to check that out. And then just today, literally right before we left, um, uh, Prophecy Watchers posted a new video from their studio that I did with Mondo Gonzalez on the Luciferian Agenda. It's a 30-minute interview, not a podcast, like we've had a lot of those lately, but this was an interview, a TV interview. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, I hadn't even got to watch it yet. I mean, I I was there, but I don't remember what I said. I hope I agree with everything I said. That would be embarrassing if I didn't. Uh, and then uh, this is the podcast that we did today. It hasn't uh, dropped yet, but I think it's scheduled to come out tomorrow. Christians should be awake, not woke. And then since last we met, we did have the Stand Up for the Truth uh, interview with David Fiorazzo on the rise of anti-Christian sentiment, persecution, and anti-Semitism. Uh, you can check out the books again, spiritoftheantichrist.org. Other end times books that I have are What Lies Ahead and The Great Last Day's Deception. Those are out there on the table. The chart books are also out there. We do sell these online in digital format where you can download the PowerPoints and the PDFs or in print. And I will say for those of you here in the room, if you do pick one of those up, uh, keep in mind the, the church buys these at cost. And, and then, you know, we people, when they buy them from the table, they reimburse the church. That, that This has nothing to do with not by works. They just get the products at cost. 
this is the most important, uh, most uh, expensive uh, product out there. It is very expensive to do 100 and something color pages and the printer that we use, we found the cheapest one we could find, but they still cost over $20. So if you choose this one, you might, you know, obviously we want it to be our, your, your, our gift to you if you need it to be, but if you have the means and you can help reimburse the church, we encourage you to do that. Uh, and then uh, don't forget about the upcoming conferences. I talked to the pastor uh, today. We did a little promo video. He's excited. He said the registrations are filling up and really looking forward to that one. That'll be live streamed and it's free. And then the big one in Orlando is the Prophecy Summit with Prophecy Watchers. That one does cost uh, to register for. Uh, but just basically, I encourage you to sign up for one of our podcast channels. We're on every major podcast provider. If you can name it, we're there. Just search for Not By Works Ministries, sign up, and we're dropping, it seems like at least every day, a new podcast. And uh, encourage you to stay in touch with us that way. All right. Yes. There will still be services here on the weekends that you're on. Absolutely. Services like on Sunday? Yeah, so when I'm on the road, uh, Plum Creek Chapel has uh, some great folks that fill in. Uh, we've got people in-house and others that we bring in to fill in. So yeah, we will always have church uh, here. If, by the way, if you're looking for a church home and don't already have a good Bible teaching church home, love to have you visit with us on Sunday at Plum Creek. Uh, we are, because of our capacity issues, you know, Sunday we had four people that couldn't even park, four cars that drove up, couldn't find a spot to park. It was that packed, standing room only. So in two weeks on the 26th, two weeks from this Sunday, we are launching two services here at Plum Creek Chapel, 8.30 and 10. Same message, I'll preach at both service, but it'll be uh, just a way to help alleviate some of the, the spacing issues. Um, but until then, worship every Sunday at 10, Bible study at 9. And um, yeah, whether I'm here or not, this is, uh, you know, our church happens. Uh, when I'm on the road on Tuesdays, uh, my going in plan, and we'll announce this. This is why you definitely want to sign up for our newsletter at notbyworks.org or plumcreekchapel.org. Sign up for both, actually. Uh, go to the homepage right at the bottom. Put in your email. You're, you're, you're done. And you can unsubscribe at any time by just clicking a button. But when I'm on the road, what, what I'm hoping to do is still have the Tuesday Night Prophecy Night, but do it by live stream only. And I don't want folks to drive up here and not get the word and no one's here. So... Uh, so that may be one of the things that we do when I'm in Orlando, uh, but we'll keep you posted on that. But next couple of weeks, uh, or let's see, what's today? The seventh. So the fourth next week for sure we're here, and probably the twenty-first uh, I'll be doing it by live stream. But we'll keep you posted. All right. Well, thank you guys. God bless.